0: Thank yeah. yeah. Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, a podcast exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? My name is Blythe Barno, and this podcast is a project of Surge Faith. This podcast is designed to be a resource for white people who are realizing that to be Christian in this time and in this country means listening to, learning from, and joining in with the struggle against racism and white supremacy. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback and accountability from listeners of color. The music you just heard is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're deeply grateful to the Freeney-Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. This is my first episode, and I'm excited to be part of the Word is Resistance team. Just so you know a little more about me, I'm a queer white femme who was raised working class in Ohio, and now lives on occupied Ohlone land known as Oakland, California. I recently graduated from seminary and am a writer, preacher, and community organizer. I didn't grow up in the church, and seminary was sometimes a strange place. I learned what I know about the sacred from harm reductionists, survivors, sex workers, and working class grandmas, from my community. In 2015, I launched Feminary, an online ministry seeking to find divinity in the profane, a space for those deemed too much for the church. Too difficult, too poor, too addicted, too queer, too mouthy, too sexual, too political. After all, these are the people who raised me. You can learn more about me at feminary.wordpress.com. Sisters, don't get weary. Brothers, courage. Brothers, don't get weary. People, courage. People, don't get weary. Go the way we belong. This week we'll be looking at Genesis chapter twenty-two, verses one to fourteen often known as the binding of Isaac. In this story, God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering, which Abraham agreed to. He agreed to murder his son. As the story goes on, Abraham prepares to travel to Mount Moriah bringing two men, meaning slaves, with him and Isaac on the journey. Isaac had no idea what was going on. He thought they were just going to make an offering to God. He even carried the wood for the offering on his back at Abraham's request. When they arrived, Abraham built the altar, which is where he placed Isaac after tying him up. And just as he raised his hand to stab his child, An angel spoke and said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. So Isaac was set free, and a ram was sacrificed in his place. All right. There's just so much in there. First of which is that Isaac wasn't Abraham's only child. In fact, his eldest son's name was Ishmael, and Abraham had just kicked him and his mother Hagar out of his house. Hagar had been kept as a slave by Sarah and Abraham and was forced to conceive a child for them, Ishmael. But then, after Sarah was able to conceive, Hagar was sent out to the wilderness so that Sarah could protect her inheritance and her position in the family and society. Now, I know that God values the life and wellness of Hagar and Ishmael because God saves them both from thirst in the desert— God treats them both with care and dignity, so I can't imagine that this erasure stems from the divine. It's important that we question the erasure of this powerful African mother in our modern readings of this text. Hagar and Ishmael should not be the afterthoughts of our faith. They should be central to it. Now, when I read the text again this week, I was struck by all the usual things. Abraham's compliance, the distortion of God's request, God's attempt to interrupt the violence we do to ourselves and others. But what I found myself fixating on was Isaac. We don't hear much about Isaac, which is strange, considering this violence is being done to his body. It makes me wonder what else is being left out. Did Isaac fight back? What words were exchanged between him and his father? Did he also consent to his murder in a misguided attempt to honor God? What happened when he got free? This story, it evokes a lot for me. But what caught my attention this time came before they ever made it to Mount Moriah. I couldn't stop thinking about Isaac, unwittingly carrying the logs that were meant to kill him. There was something about it that made me so angry. How dare Abraham do that to him? And I realized that the largeness of my reaction probably meant that it was touching on something that felt familiar in my own life. I grew up in a smallish working class town in Ohio. Well, to be fair, I was born in Southern California and moved to Ohio when I was 10. Still, it's home for me, foundational in many ways. And while it took some getting used to, moving from the West Coast to the Midwest, I found deep resonance and comfort in the pace and people of my town. Pride is an entirely different thing there. It has less to do with ego and more to do with integrity. And while many of the people I was raised with are more politically conservative than I am, they embody a deep generosity that has taught me more about grace than any church or leftist organization ever has. Still, there were struggles. Money was tight for nearly every person I knew, a fact none of us ever spoke about. We knew better, without anybody ever having to tell us. You could feel that call to silence in your body. Like when my grandma would come over to visit. My mother, brother, and I were living off of welfare and food stamps at the time. Mom would bring home lunch meat and imitation fish from the deli counter she worked at, but our pantry was often pretty bare. And while my grandma would have been glad to help, I knew better than to ask for it. I knew in my heart in my body, that I was supposed to keep her out of our kitchen. I knew I was meant to protect my family by hiding our struggle. As I grew into a teenager, the struggles of my town became more and more obvious. Drug use, racism, domestic violence, sexual assault, all of it very thinly veiled by quaint small town ways until my friends started dying. I was 15 when I went to my first funeral for a friend. His mother had told us he'd died in his sleep, which we all knew to mean he'd died of a drug overdose. His funeral would be the first of many. In fact, in my junior year of college, seven of my friends died. They lost their lives to overdose, suicide, the war in Iraq— I was brokenhearted, more distraught than I knew how to say. And like many who experience sudden loss, I was left questioning why. Why were my friends dying? Why couldn't I stop it? I'd left home for college and was studying on Long Island in New York. It was different there. (laughs) I missed the Midwestern kindness I'd come to love. I missed working class community. But I was also learning new things. I was studying systems like white supremacy, classism, and homophobia. I was learning new academic language and concepts, but was having trouble connecting the theory to the practical. After all, for most of the people I was studying with, these theories had no real implication on their lives. So often the conversation felt hollow." They were missing the brilliance of the people who truly understand those systems, the ones who were surviving them. understand the distrust of higher education, even though I just graduated with a master's degree. Too often, academia forcibly removes the experience of people's lives from the theory of their survival. It's a form of violence, a privileged distortion that disrespects entire communities. Growing up working class in the Midwest, respect is foundational. It's how we come to understand love. At least in my family, love and respect are deeply intertwined. If you don't respect us, you can't love us. Respect was how we honored one another. It was what we could offer, no matter how broke or broken we felt. It was what we could give each other that others often wouldn't. We took it seriously. There was honor in having a skill, providing for your family and treating simplicity like it was sacred. There was honor in making your life a bit better than what you'd come up from. It's the stuff of country music, the hymns of the working class. And it would be easy to write it off as simple-minded and shallow, ignorant even. I imagine it looks that way to others sometimes. But that's because they don't understand what it takes for working-class people to scrape it all together. A home. A family. A skill some pleasure these things aren't guaranteed they're fought for and survival is always worthy of respect i love working class people and i'm very protective of them because the working class is not solely responsible for racism in this country look at the new alt-right movement and president a billionaire from new york But I also love us enough to name that there is something happening under the surface. That in my white working class community, respect was contingent on meeting the unspoken expectations of whiteness. You were meant to be stoic, self-reliant, perfect, and silent in the face of shame. You were meant to succeed, to achieve some part of the American dream because somewhere we believed that dream was for us. There is a thin line between integrity and superiority sometimes. Respect was often contingent on meeting these expectations, which meant our ability to be loved was too. But because these expectations are rooted in the logic of white supremacy, they're almost impossible to achieve. So most of us fail. We fail, And if the lie of white supremacy goes unrecognized, then we blame ourselves. White supremacy is the kindling that fuels the violence we continue to do to ourselves and others. We try to hide our shame with silence, substance use, self-harm and despair. We externalize the violence of our shame as racism, xenophobia and blame. Like Isaac, we are carrying a weight we do not understand. We thought it was honor, sacrifice, respect. We did not know that it could kill us, too. It was not only drugs, suicide, drunk driving, and the war that killed my friends. It was the lack of a healthy sense of self. It is something many white people struggle with. What does it mean to be who we are as individuals without comparing ourselves to others, without measuring ourselves against the markers of whiteness. Too often our sense of self is rooted in the impossible expectation and violence of white supremacy. My friends, all of them white, were not the targets of white supremacy, but it killed them anyway. I don't believe that most of our parents meant to harm us or indoctrinate us. I trust that they were trying to live honorably, just as Abraham was. But Abraham's own shame and guilt made it impossible to hear God clearly. And that shame almost cost Isaac his life. Our shame keeps killing because we refuse to acknowledge it. So we never get a chance to see what's lurking underneath it all. It was the shame and toxicity of white supremacy that told me to keep my grandmother out of our kitchen. I didn't want her to know we were failing. We try to protect our family by hiding our struggle, so our fear continues fear of failing, fear of losing our place, fear of losing our claim to superiority. It is the same fear that fueled Sarah's choices and cost Hagar her body, her home and her son's security. We do not have to harm each other harm ourselves to prove our worthiness after all it's not earned it's given by god each of us already part of the divine this week i invite you to notice moments when you try to displace your shame instead of acknowledging it where do you try to put it who does it serve How does shame support your silent or active participation in racism? Write down your noticings. Talk about it with a friend, partner or therapist. Pray about it. What comes up? What does your relationship to shame teach you about what you need to address in order to fully show up in the struggle to end racism? Remember that working to end racism is first and foremost about ending the violence against communities of color. But our lives are intersectional, and the struggle for justice requires our healing, too. Thanks for joining us today. As always, you can find a transcript of this week's podcast on our website. Let us know what you think by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. We'll be posting the next podcast around July 4th, exploring the electionary text for the following Sunday. Reverend Ann Dunlap will be returning for that episode. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. To find our podcast again, simply search for The Word is Resistance on SoundCloud or iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or need help with action ideas, You can interact with us on our SoundCloud or Facebook page. Transcripts are available on our website, which includes any references, credits, and copyright information. Until next time, may you go forward in the peace and power of the God who loves us for all that we are and in spite of nothing, the same God that calls us to this work of justice. Amen.